0: Well, good morning, church. On this uh, beautiful June morning, let me just give you a brief update on on this. Uh, two weeks ago, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention, which is an annual meeting of Southern Baptist churches. It was held in Nashville, Tennessee, and I thought the convention went well. Just briefly, I've already sent out a little statement from the in the email, but I I'm I'm thankful for our collegiality of churches. I believe that we are um, biblically strong in our boards, in our seminaries. Um, uh, I think that some good things were said and done. One thing that was done, there was a resolution introduced that basically said that we find our identity only in Jesus and not in any other theory or ism, and that was particularly geared toward something that's called the critical race theory or intersectionality, which I think was a very good statement. But I was there. Uh, Somebody asked me, texted me while I was there, and then we had lunch afterwards, and he said, do you think that uh, the conservative resurgence or the biblical fidelity of the Southern Baptist Convention is set? And I said, no. It's not set in my life until Jesus comes. It's not set in our church until the Lord comes. We have to be constantly vigilant and always keen to observe the authority of the Bible and make application to that in our living I think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 where he says, Timothy, uh, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in it uh, in such a way that people can see your progress. And if you do that, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. So the watch is never left out. We want to be vigilant and and kind and gracious and fully under the authority of the Bible. So I I think it, it went fairly well. Um, Nashville's. A, I didn't hear any country music. I wanted to. I did not. Um, I did get some hot chicken, so it was a, it was a success in that regard. Now, we are uh, in the, this Psalm 51, and as a backdrop to that, there's a man named John Calvin who died in 1564. He was one of the chief leaders of the Reformation. Uh, Calvin, one of the great teachers of the church, said this. He said, devotion to God, or piety, is reverence joined with love for God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces, or prompts, or carries us along to. The knowledge of his benefits induces. And then he goes on and says, in this incredibly concise and beautiful statement from his Institutes, he says, until we are fully aware of the fatherly care of God— and his nourishment of us by his mercy, we will never yield to him willful obedience. I think it's an incredible statement. So that you, we, we can stand over people with the stick sometimes and demand certain things, but Calvin says that, that we, we've got to get people to see the the, the the reverence for God joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits prompts. And as we understand and grapple with the fatherly goodness of the Lord and his ongoing tender care for us, when that happens then we have willful obedience. So so with that as a background, listen to Psalm 116, which talks about this whole issue. Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord Jehovah because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined or stooped, see, he stooped down to hear me. Therefore... I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So this, this resolution that flows from the understanding of the benefits of the Lord. Listen to Psalm 56, just two verses. Verse nine or verse eleven and twelve or twelve and thirteen. Listen, I, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the God in the light of life. Therefore, I must do these things. There's a a distinct resolution to do these things. So we come to Psalm 51. You see the same pattern in David's prayer here. David has been exposed as a man who's been involved in seducing um, and having an affair with another man's wife. She becomes pregnant. He has her husband killed with a cohort of brave warriors with him. He has lied. He has coveted. He's covered it up, and he's miserable so here's a man who's an adulterer, a multiple murderer, a liar, a thief, and a, co- of a coveter, and he's, his sin is exposed. And he writes Psalm 51 out of the deep anguish of spirit, where he says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out all my transgressions, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity, and cleanse me of my sins." He's just pleading with God. And then you go drop down in the psalm and and he comes to the statement where he says, he says, I've sinned against God. He says, you you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he just says, God, if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. If you purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Persian hyssop reflects the sacrificial system. They would dip the hyssop in the blood and sprinkle it on the people to declare them clean. It's a forward-looking to the coming of Jesus. So he says, do that in my life. Cleanse me. Change my heart. And and then he says this to me is one of the most phenomenal statements in the Bible. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Let the bones you have broken in disciplining me and in calling me back by your fatherly goodness, let them rejoice. And then verse 9, he receives the forgiveness. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Get rid of them. And and in light of that, he, he prays, he gives five petitions that I've covered the last few weeks. He says, as you do that, create in me a clean heart, O God. He says, God, you've got to do it. He says, I am am a wayward child. I've I've walked away from you. Please create afresh in me a clean heart and renew an unwavering spirit within me. And and then he says this. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. (laughs) Don't, don't, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't cast me out. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He says, my, self, my joy is gone. I've been walking in disobedience. I have no joy. Let me have that joy again as I understand forgiveness. And then he says, and uphold me or sustain me or prompt me, prop me up with, with a willing spirit that says, I want to be obedient. And he says, and as you do that, as I understand those benefits, it will call forth from me three different things, which we're going to discuss this morning from verses 13 and following. So, so but, but, but what he's saying is that, that the Lord, you not only have to forgive me, verse 9, but you must empower me. You must change my heart continuously. That is our prayer. There's a, there's a hymn that some of us who are older sang as we were growing up, if we grew up in the church. And it's entitled, uh, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have Thine Own Way. Written in 1906 by a woman named Adelaide Potter, who was at a crossroads in her life, a crisis of faith, trying to decide how she was going to live out her life. Not, not that she was going to walk away from the Lord, but just she was pleading for God to direct her life. And the hymn goes like this. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. I'm on the potter's wheel. Mold me and make me after your will while I am waiting, yielded, and still. So that's, the prayer. That's, that's our prayer. Have your way. As I see your fatherly goodness, have your way. And one stanza goes, so it's a very short hymn. She says, "She says, have your own way, Lord, have your own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. So she says, Lord, I am I'm wounded, and, I'm wounded and weary. You know, I say that. And then she says this, have your own way. Hold or my being absolute sway fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me so so it's it's a prayer for Lord energize me empower me to live for you see David has tasted forgiveness he's pled for new heart right spirit Holy Spirit empowered joy and a willing attitude. And now he says, if you do that, Lord, here are the results as I contemplate what you've done in my life. The first is this. Then, see, then I will teach transgressors your ways and the sinners will be turned back to you. He says, Lord, as you, as you teach and work in me, I, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be returned to you. We've been this little internal statement that we want to walk among ourselves and think in the future that goes like this helping broken people to treasure Jesus. And the truth is, we all are broken people. We're broken people who speak to broken people. We're not perfect people, nobody has it all together. We are helping broken people to treasure Jesus. Um, Charles Wesley was uh, the brother of John Wesley, lived in England, 1700s. I think he died in 1803 or something, but anyway, Charles Wesley uh, raised in a a home where he was taught the gospel, uh, worked hard to earn God's favor, And then as a young adult in his early 30s, he came to understand that you're saved by faith alone through what Jesus has done for you on the cross. We add nothing to it. And the joy exploded in his heart because he truly understood the gospel. Shortly after that, this account happened. He's on a coach traveling with two other people. One of them is a very wealthy, older woman. And Charles Wesley on this ride says, I'm going to take the opportunity to teach transgressors your ways. And so he says, I I have been, I've come to understand the forgiveness of sin through Christ alone. He says, for many years, I thought I had to earn it. Now I know this freely given to me if I repent and believe. God works in my heart. He says, I realized that I deserved hell, but God has saved me by the work of Jesus. And the the older lady wasn't here, and she kind of gave the harumph. And he said, in, in fact, young in fact, madam, unless you repent and believe, you too deserve hell and damnation. And she said, sir, if I could, I would beat you with my cane. And uh, I don't know what happened after that, but that's the end of the story. And I, and I thought, you know, I read that, and I thought, that, that, that's the way the, the, the world's, don't, don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me I'm broken. Don't tell me that, that I, I can't fix myself completely. Don't tell me I'm not self-sufficient. So that's what the lady said to, to, to Charles Wesley. Wesley wrote thousands of poems. He was a prolific writer. But one of them was put to music and it goes like this. Jesus the name that calms my fears, that bids my sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear. Tis life and health and peace. So this is all about treasuring Jesus with our lives. The world says you've got to work to earn it. The gospel says you simply receive it. And so that, that, that's why David says, he says, as, I, as I've tasted this, my commitment I want to teach transgressors your ways and may sinners be turned to you. Let me tell you how that works. A few examples. In, your, in the marketplace of, of life, in your neighborhoods, in your families, among your coworkers, you get to know people. And people say to you, maybe one day you're talking, and they say, you know, I, I'm struggling. They would say, I'm struggling with guilt. I've done some things I'm just ashamed of. you say, you know, I have to. Everyone here has done things they're ashamed of, unless you're two years or less. Okay. And, and so you're, 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 you say, I, I have to. He says, "But I just uh, this is what I, I, I've come to understand that the eternal God became a man and died on the cross, so that my sin and guilt can be wiped away. In fact, the Bible says it's as far as the east is from the west, which means it's infinitely separated. That's all I have to say." They say, "Well, that's not, I'm not there." said, "Well, that's just, but I want to teach transgressors your ways." Or somebody will say, well, I, I'm a person who lives with anxiety. I, I just don't, I'm, I'm anxious about it. And there's reasons to be anxious. You know, you look at the future and you go, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious. You say, well, I struggle with anxiety too. Anybody that reads the news and thinks. But I, I used to believe that there was maybe a creator God that made everything beautiful and walked away. But now I believe that creator God became a man and, and as he walked the face of the earth, he said that not a bird will fall from the sky without the Father's knowledge. And the Father loves us. He said that the Father has numbered the very hair upon our head, and the Father loves us. So, so I still have anxiety, but my anxiety has, has, has diminished because I, th- I think I can trust him. That's, I have to, that's it. Marriage. I mean, you, you have, we all have friends who are married. Some of us are married. Uh, marriage. By the way, today, Sarah and I have been married for 41 years. Yeah. The applause goes to her. She's, she's bore the burden of this relationship, much more than me. 56 or 50? Good. We got You're You're getting there, John. Anyway. Keep hanging in there. Uh, Let me me tell you, just from experience, let me tell you how to kill your marriage. You ready? Write this down. Keep score. Keep score. You did this for me, I'll do that for you. You didn't do this for me, I'm not gonna do that for you. It, It destroys a marriage. It kills it. Keep score. The way a marriage flourishes is run to the cross. And you go to Ephesians four thirty two. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Jesus. And you live there, and you forgive them, as they forgive you. So you say, you say people destroy their marriage. You know, you know, yeah. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. It's also joyful. But the way marriage thrives, I believe, is that you don't keep score. You don't keep score because you see that God doesn't keep score with you. Despair. People walk in depression. Despair. Christians struggle with depression. They misunderstand me. But, but, but if you can step back and say, in my discouragement and despair, I believe there's hope because there is a God who loves me and cares for me and watches over me and walks. And that means, Therefore, I have Hope. We should be people of hope because we believe God watches over us. I, I've been reading some reading, doing some reading lately. I've just been walking through several people historically. There's a guy named Tom Paine. You know him from American history who wrote uh, Common Sense, which was powerfully used in the revolution. Tom Paine was an atheist. He mocked the Christian faith. He, 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 after the American Revolution, went to France and he wrote something called um, something else. The Rights of Man, about the French Revolution, which was a godless revolution, a horrible revolution. And and Tom Paine really died a broken, sad man bereft of friends in 1809. No friends. Nobody cared for him. In fact, 22 years later, somebody paid to dig up his bones, and they were shipping his bones from France to America to bury them. And they got lost at sea, and nobody knows where the bones are today. They may be in your backyard, for all you know. I mean, I thought, here's a guy who doesn't even know where his bones are. Or I thought of um, uh, Francisco Goya, the famous Spanish painter. Uh, He died in 1826. And Goya was a dashing, gifted ladies man growing up, a real art warrior and ended up being discouraged, beat down, uh, tired of Spain, and he went into this house and he wrote, he, he drew beautiful frescoes all, all over the walls. And they were all dark and horrendous and spoke of death. And he lost his hearing and he died uh, an, an abandoned old man. He just did. And then the next year a guy named Ludwig von Beethoven died. And von Beethoven, incredibly, a genius who started losing his hearing at age 30, and was totally deaf at the age of 34, and he died at the age of 56, and by all historical accounts, when Beethoven died, he died basically friendless. And then fast forward to 1940-ish something, Virginia Woolf, the famous British female writer who wrote these books and developed a new literary style, and then she died of, of suicide. I just go on and on and on. And then I thought, then I was reading, I read a biography a couple of months ago by a guy guy named Charles Hodge, who was the greatest theologian in 19th century America, taught at Princeton for 40 years. And and Charles Hodge, when he died, they closed the shops all over Princeton, New Jersey, so that everybody could go to his funeral. His kids loved him. He died with an incredible reputation and hope. I just thought the pragmatic test points to the glory of Jesus. And I thought about one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 14, verse 26 and 27, says, In the fear of the Lord, one has a strong foundation, and for his children it will be a refuge. What's that that promise? The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. That's hope. That's hope. So, so number one, you have a desire to communicate what God has done in your life. Number two, there is a forgiveness that leads to celebration. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's a forgiveness that leads to celebration. Verse fourteen. David backs up. And here's what David is thinking in his heart. I believe he's thinking. He says, "Can it be? Is it possible that God can forgive me of the murder of Uriah and his brave cohort? Can God really forgive that?" He says. He says. He says. So, so deliver me from blood guiltness, murder. O God, O God of my salvation, and, parenthesis, as I am forgiven, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I will sing. I will celebrate. I'll be glad. We need to be a celebrating people because God has forgiven us, and we, we've, we've, we've tasted that. So I want you to hear this very important to me. David is drinking this, but we swim in it. David is, he sees this dimly through the sacrificial system. Messiah is coming, but we swim in it. Hebrews 10 says this, verse one, he says, for since the law has but a shadow A shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. The only way to be declared righteous ultimately is through the work of Jesus on the cross. I say, David drank this, we swim in it. Now, that has that just made me want to sing. Listen, I'm going to read you something from John Calvin's Institutes. This is book two, chapter 11, section four. Just three sentences. Listen, though, this is so good. The Old Testament of the Lord was that covenant wrapped up in the shadowy, see shadows, and ineffectual observance of ceremonies delivered to the Jews, it was temporary. Because it remained, as it were, in suspense until it might rest upon a firm and substantial confirmation established by the blood of Jesus. Expl- Listen, it was temporary, it was shadowy, it was even suspenseful. What, what's Calvin saying is that the Old Testament believers said, Messiah is coming. To cover my sins, the sacrificial system represents it, but until that is accomplished, there is still something of suspense. The Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they're there. A cloud comes down, Christ is filled with splendor. Two figures come down. Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, two men from the Old Testament. And they spoke with Jesus about his coming passion in Jerusalem. And then Peter, because you know what to say, said, let's build three tabernacles, one to Moses, one to Elijah, one to Jesus. And they were gone. And a voice said, This is my beloved son, hear him, basically. So so my question is, and this is my opinion, okay? What did Elijah and Moses talk with the Lord Jesus about? Here's the answer, in my opinion. They were talking to him, we know, about the coming passion in Jerusalem. What they were saying is, almighty God in the flesh, finish the calling you've embraced. Take our sins and the sins of these men and the sins of your people to the cross. Do not turn aside from what God has called you to do. See, there was a sense of suspense until the cross firmly established once and for all the forgiveness of sin. So I say to us that that while David drank this, we swim in it. We realize it's all of grace. Man, this makes me want to sing. Let me give you this verse. This is your verse. I want you to memorize this verse this week. Just, we, we can do this. John six thirty seven. Listen to this. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Never. Never. Never, it's it's accomplished, I'm in Christ, never. If, If I was buying a dog today or a cat, I would name the cat or the dog, never. Just so I would remember that, never, never. So John Newton, the slave trader, the immoral man who came to Jesus and wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this, I'm gonna give you one paragraph of a letter he wrote, this is, he was 42 years old, he would die 40 years later, he's now in the ministry preaching Jesus and he writes a letter to a friend, this is what he says, this is so good. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are The Lord thinks of you, but never be discouraged. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he cast none out that come to him, why should you fear? Never cast out. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is all power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. A legal spirit says, I've got to earn, I've got to earn, I've got to earn, I've got to earn. And Newton says, he's the great physician. He has every cure you need. He is all powerful. He can forgive sin. And I say that to you. And I I just, there should be forgiveness and celebration in our lives, you see, when you when you celebrate the goodness of Jesus, you forget yourself, and people who treasure Jesus become like Jesus. That's what I want. This week we had um, a special vacation Bible school for our friends' ministry. Our friends' ministry is a ministry of, uh, for, for families and children who have special needs. And these children are, are precious, but, but they have special needs and it requires a lot of uh, numerous counselors and workers. And here's a little girl that special needs a little boy. And so we, we these people all week long just played with them and fed them. And I, I was at the, the luncheon on Friday and I kind of walked the halls every day and saw the kids. And I was walking the hall one day this week and I and a little boy named Jack was walking the hall. Jack's a handsome guy. He's a big guy and uh, real sweet. So, but Jack uh, reached out and held my hand, and we walked up and down the hall for about five minutes holding hands. And uh, then he went to crafts, and, and, I, and I thought, this is probably more than anything else I've done this week, more like Jesus than anything I've done. It's, it's just, I just I just thank God for these people. Let me, let me just, this an aside. If I was a 23, 24, 25-year-old guy who wanted to get married, and if you're 23, 24, 25 and you're a guy, you should want to get married. That's not a, you know, unless you're called a singleness. I would go to the church, a Bible-believing, Jesus-honoring church, and say, who are the young women that teach Sunday school? or take care of nursery people, or work in a friend's class. I want to marry a woman like that. Just telling you. That's what I do. But because people who treasure Jesus become like Jesus. I want that. The third thing in this passage is, is there's a happiness that flows from a life of repentance. Repentance is turning from sin to the cross. Repentance is turning from selfishness to Jesus. Listen, David says, verse 16 and 17, for for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. And this is what David said. David is saying, during all of my covering up of my sin, my half-heartedness that preceded my sin, and my adultery, my murder, I, I still went to sacrifice. I still went to the, to the sacrificial system. I, I, I still stood there as a king and watched some sacrifice, and I probably sang the hymns and did the thing, but my heart wasn't in it. He says, he says if, if the Lord delighted in mere, in mere sacrifice, I'd give it. If he was pleased with burnt offerings, I would do it. He says, but the sacrifices of God are a contrite spirit, a, a, a contrite and broken heart, O Lord, you will not despise. In other words, the sacrificial system was, was to mirror what I was feeling inside of myself. Just as we take the Lord's Supper, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, this represents who I am. This represents, I am representing and I'm acknowledging the body and the blood of Jesus. And I'm taking this in a worthy fashion. So, so this is, this is what I'm doing. So, so the, 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 but what happened, David was saying this, I would do the sacrifice, but my heart was far from it. The sacrifice is good because it points to the coming of Jesus, but my heart should be in it and the sacrifices of God. Our contrite spirit, our contrite spirit, and our broken heart. You won't despise. Augustine, the great teacher, died in 430, said the three prerequisites for power in the Christian faith and walking in the fullness of God are humility, humility, humility. And it comes as you behold the cross. So let me just give you a few steps to repentance as I understand it. Number one is I acknowledge my sin first step. I'm in need. I confess my sin. You don't listen to Satan's excuses. Satan loves to give you excuses. Well, you're bad, but not as bad as that guy. Or, you know, really if people understood your predicament, they'd understand why you do this. No, 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 no. I'm in need. You recognize your need. You're not like the woman on the coach who tells Charles Wesley, if you tell me I deserve judgment, I'm going to beat you on the head with my cane. The second thing is you, you run to the Father's heart and embrace. This is what the Lord says. This is in Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I want revival. How does revival come in part? I revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. And then he says in chapter 66, verse 2, this is the one that I will look to or the one that I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn over, over your sin. So you acknowledge your sin and then you run to the Father's heart in his embrace. And thirdly, you receive fresh mercy. You hear your sins are forgiven by the work of Jesus. But here's another step. Here's another step. The fourth step. I willfully make amends. Amends. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that you've, your brother has something against you, in other words, you've sinned against your brother, leave your gift, be reconciled, then come back to worship. In other words, if I've publicly said something that is wrong, Detrimental, caring. If I've done something to hurt someone, I go to them and I ask their forgiveness. It's, just, if it's a secret sin, deal with it before you and God. But an outward sin that other people have heard, I'm, you, you say, please, can, can, we get, can we get this right? You see, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The benefit, the, 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 the knowledge of the benefits of the living Christ that he pours in our life, David says, involves our desire to communicate to other people the goodness of God, uh, a, a, a forgiveness that leads to a deep celebration, deep, deep gladness, and, and a desire to walk in known repentance. And may God give us the grace to live that way. Let's pray. Lord, I, we are um, in- incredibly mindful that you are glorious and you are good because we see the cross. And we pray that you would work in us to have an understanding of the glory and goodness that you, the fatherly pleasure and the ongoing sustaining mercy that you give to our lives. I, I pray that you would Bring that and the, the knowledge of those benefits would compel us to be the people of God that will lead to usefulness and joy and fulfillment and happiness. We want to be that type of people. We want to teach transgressors your ways. We want to speak with such love and dignity that sinners will return to you. We want to understand our forgiveness in such a way that we celebrate. We're so glad. And we want to be people who walk in the Repentance that brings happiness and usefulness. Do that in us. Thank you for this psalm of incredible, self-revealing honesty. Oh, God, create in us a clean heart. Renew an unwavering spirit. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore the joy of your salvation. And sustain us with a willing spirit. Prop us up, hold us up, I pray. In Jesus' name.